Hello, I'm Jeff Stelling. Welcome to Football's Greatest, where each week I'll be sitting down with a legend of the game. This week, we are going to be discussing some of the greatest set piece takers of our time. The man who'll be joining me sat next to me on the studio of Soccer Saturday for many, many years. As a pundit, he was different because he didn't resort to tired old cliches. As a player, he was very different. He's been called a genius, a phenomenon. He was nicknamed Le God and called the world's greatest ever playground footballer. His name, of course, is Matt Letizier. When the penalty shootout came round, I just had this feeling that, why aren't I there? <laughs> I want to be there. That's what be. I'm good at that. I don't think that Glenn enjoyed having somebody being compared to him. I, I think he felt like he was a, a, a level above me. There was three of us taking the free kicks, me, Glenn, and David Beckham. And I just remember stood there thinking, I never thought I'd be taking a free kick with two other people and I'd be the shittest one there. <laughs> Hi, Matt. Hey, Jeff. I love that. I love the greatest playground player. I like that. You know, I've never heard that one before. Yeah, right? it's great. Well, it just suggests you played me. with such a, such a joy and a freedom, which you did, you know. That's what football for me was all about. That's, you know, one of the reasons why I never left Southampton because I just wanted to play. I just wanted to entertain people. I was a little bit different. I wasn't that fussed about winning stuff. <laughs> the, the the game was more important to me than the winning. But I sat down knowing we were going to have this chat. And of course, I can remember your playing days, but I just wanted to remind myself. And I looked at a compilation of some of your greatest goals. And it took my breath away. And I'm scratching my head and thinking, you scored goals like that on a regular basis. How the heck... Did you not win more England caps? <laughs> uh, yeah, um, I mean, there were probably reasons behind that. There was there were several things, I think. Firstly, I got a reputation very early on as being a lazy player, and that reputation stuck with me throughout my whole career. And it was something that I kind of played up to, but I didn't think I was really that lazy. I used to think that I was actually economical, is the way that <laughs> I would put it. I didn't waste energy unnecessarily by running around the pitch when I knew I had no chance of catching something just to make it look like I was trying for the fan sakes. And so I didn't do that. And there were a couple of reasons I turned down moves to clubs where the managers that I turned down went on to become England managers. So I turned down Spurs in 1990. Terry Venables was manager. And I turned down Chelsea in 1995 and Glenn Hoddle was manager. Both those went on to become England managers not long after I turned them down. Um, so they held that against you, you I think? think? I think both were a bit disappointed because I'd actually agreed to join Spurs uh, and I changed my mind late on. And then after I changed my mind, my agent rang me and said, oh, Terry would like to speak to you to try and mm. obviously convince me. And I said to him, I just turned to my agent. I went, no, it's all right. I've made my mind up. I don't want to speak to him. So I blanked him. And then the same thing happened when Glenn Hoddle, when Chelsea tried to buy me, and my agent rang me back and went, and that was hard because, you know, my agent's ringing me going, Glenn Odell wants to speak to you. Now, I was a Spurs fan as a kid and Glenn was my hero. And, uh, and I was like, oh, no, if I, if I speak to him, I don't know, what, don't know what might come of that conversation. So uh, so I just said, no, I've made my mind up. I don't want to speak to him. So I blanked Glenn as well. They, they become England managers. They gave me a chance, not many, but I don't, I don't think I was ever really given a fair crack of the whip at England. We'll come back around to that a bit later, in particular with Glenn Hoddle. But, you know, 
look at the compilations. So we're going to talk about set plays, but, but there weren't just set play goals, were there? There were, you know, volleys, solo runs, chips, headers. You scored a lot of headers. What was your favourite ever goal? Have you got one? I've got two different answers for my favourite goal and my best goal. So the best goal I think I yeah. scored was against Blackburn, which won the, the goal of the season in 1995. My favourite goal, however, I think because of the situation, because of the fact it was the last ever game at the Dell, I was the last ever person to score a league goal at the Dell. That, that winning goal against Arsenal in the 88th minute, I think it was, in the last ever game at the I couldn't have written a better script to finish my playing career at the Dell, really. It was just amazing. And that, that day will stick with me forever. It was a brilliant moment. And, you know, for people who were watching, we all just knew it was going to happen. <laughs> as, as well. Well, the weird thing about it is that what people don't realise is that goal was my only Premier League goal that season. I'd been injured quite a lot that season. I'd been in and out of the team. I think I'd scored a goal in the League Cup earlier on in the season. And and yet that was the only goal of the season. It just happened to come at just the right time. I'd come on as a sub. You know, the game was poised at two all. And it was just a, an unbelievable way to send the stadium away. I've got two favourites. One was the chip over Peter Schmeichel mm. in the 6-3 over Manchester United. And I mean, yeah. chipping Schmeichel, that took some that doing. That was pretty special. Yeah, I mean, it was a nonchalant way you turned away afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean, that's that was one of those things where you've got to be brave sometimes as a footballer. You've got to... So what I wasn't afraid of doing was looking stupid if something that I tried didn't come off. So I wasn't afraid of, of doing that. I wasn't afraid of missing. So... When I chipped him, the only reason that I did it, if you watch the footage, from the moment I, I received the ball and I have the little dribble, I don't look up at all, not once. So I don't know if Peter Schmeichel is off of his line or not. However, I'd watched the Newcastle Man United game the previous Monday night when Philip Albert had chipped him from about 30 yards. And I'd noticed that Peter did like to come off of his line a little bit. So when I got to the edge of the box, I just gambled that he was going to be on his six-yard line. And, and the chip was just... it just. Put, I mean, for a little while, I thought, oh, is that going to hit the crossbar? <laughs> and then as it just dipped underneath, it was like, oh, yeah, that, that's nice. And then kind of that moment where you know you've done something special and the crowd just go up. Uh, and so, yeah, the reaction was just... I just stood there and went... <laughs> My absolute favourite, though, was against Newcastle, where, mm. if I can sort of describe it, I mean, you collected the ball by virtue of a sort of back flick, a back heel almost, shoved it round one defender, flicked it over the centre-half and half-volleyed it into the corner, corner of the net. High and it was. That was a really big game in my career, actually, that one, because I'd been dropped from the team for the last five games leading up to that game. Ian Bramford had decided that Paul Moody was more likely to score goals than I was. <laughs> Sorry. Disrespectful to Paul Moody. No, but... absolutely. I, I wouldn't be disrespectful to Moody. I love Moody. And he was a great lad, but he wasn't the goal scorer. And so I'd been left out for five games. I'd come back into the team. And if you watch the footage of that game, Paul Moody is warming up on the touchline as that move is taking place. And, and I score that goal and then the camera pans to Ian Bramford on the bench. And I just, and I could lip read what Branny said to Moods. He just looked at him and he went, sit down, Moods, like that. And I'm thinking, I was coming off. I was just about to be substituted then. And I did it just at the right time, kept me on. We, we went one, that was the, the first goal in the game. Andy Cole equalised. And then later on in the game, again, maybe five minutes from the end, 
Uh, I scored another goal, which was probably in my top 10 goals I ever scored as well in the same game where I took it on my thigh and volleyed it over Mike Cooper for the winning goal. Uh, and that game was a massive turning point in my career. So so that goal was very special. I mishit the finish. That's why it's not my favourite goal. Okay. So as I as I go to hit the, the half volley, instead of it going in like nice and firmly, I kind of caught it on the bottom of my studs and it kind of bobbles in a little bit. And that's the only thing about it that <laughs> stops it from being my favourite goal. <laughs> it, look, I tell you, if people think this is a bit of a love-in and this is a bit of hyperbole, uh, Harry Redknapp once said, he said, your collection of goals stands up there alongside Messi, Ronaldo, Diego Maradona and Pele's. Wow. Wow. <laughs> you know. Uh, yeah, I mean... Those guys uh, obviously scored a, a massive amount of goals, way more goals than than I ever scored. But in terms of in terms of the quality of goals, I'd like to think that you know, if you take my ten best goals, I don't think there'd be many players in the world who could put ten up against them and go, yeah, mine are better than yours. Yeah, he, he also said that if he was picking a fantasy team, he would pick you ahead of David Beckham. Yeah, I can understand that. I mean, my goal scoring record was much better than than David's. I mean, we didn't really have the the assists thing going on back in our day. Those things weren't kind of recorded. But I know I set up a lot of goals as well, which is obviously big points in fantasy football. So, um, so yeah, I think in the in the mid nineties, I think the um, Badil and Skinner did the, the the whole fantasy football thing, and I went on their show, and a lot of people had me in their team back in those days. Well, you look at someone like Beckham, who obviously you know we can talk about set plays. We'll touch on him a bit later on. But when you look at Beck, when you, when you look back, are you envious of his success and his his lifestyle that he's got? I mean, he had a film named after him with Bendit <laughs> like Beckham, you know. And yet you, I'm sure he would agree, you had more natural ability than he did. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there were certain things that, that David was better than me at. Obviously, he covered more acreage on a pitch than, than I would have done. I would have said he was a better free kick taker than I was. But there were certainly things that, that I was a, a lot better than him at. My, my goal scoring, uh, I think my my range of passing was equally as good. In fact, I think I was a bit more perceptive in my passing. My crossing was equally as good as his. But I don't envy him at all. I think he did brilliantly for what he did in his career. He was fortunate he was a, a much bigger club than I was, so his profile was always going to be bigger than mine. I remember being sat on the bench when he made his England debut, you know, and uh, just thinking, wow, this boy's got a big future ahead of him. He, proper player it was quite funny actually I, during that uh, that England get together when he when he made his debut one of the training sessions we had Glenn Hoddle was obviously manager of England and after one of the training sessions he pulled me and David over and we did some free kick taking after after training there was three of us taking the free kicks me Glenn and David Beckham and I just remember stood there thinking I never thought I'd be taking a free kick with two other people and I'd be the shittest one there. <laughs> <laughs> Who was the best then of those three? Uh, I'd say probably Beckham was, was better. He, he managed to get his body in a position where he could do that whip up and over the wall. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't get my I couldn't get my hips into that shape uh, to, to get that real width that he got. And uh, it was pretty phenomenal watching it at close quarters and... and Prousey is uh, does the same thing. He's, yeah. he's very good as well. well. Was Glenn irritated by that? By the way, that I, I think Beckham he might have been, was probably better. I, I think he might have been. Yeah, and I, I think that was one of the issues that that actually kind of went against me when it came to Glenn. Is that a lot of people during my career always compared me to him, 
Um, you know, he was my hero growing up. I was a Spurs fan. I don't think that Glenn enjoyed having somebody being compared to him. I, I think he felt like he was a, a, a level above me. I was going to talk about this later on, but let's do it now. Because, you know, obviously, Glenn was the England manager. Remember, you scored a hat-trick, didn't you? It was against Russia for England B before yep. the World Cup squad for 98 was selected. And you weren't in it. Mm. Reflecting on that, can you understand that now? I mean, that was a that was a a massive blow to me in my career. I think that was I realised that was kind of my last chance to to go to a World Cup. I was twenty eight, I think twenty nine at the time, something like that. And I'd given it a real good go. So the the back end of that season leading up to the World Cup, I'd finished really strongly at Southampton, scored a lot of goals, uh, and then we had the the B game. Uh, I'd played in the qualifier at Wembley the year before against Italy when we lost at home to Italy and I'd come in for a little bit of stick that day. Glenn came in for a bit of stick for picking me and us losing the game and I was kind of made a bit of a, a of the whipping boy really for for that defeat. But yeah, that, that game against Russia was probably one of the best 90-minute performances I, I ever had in my career. You know, it wasn't just the three goals. The rest of the game, I felt like I'd played as good as I could possibly play. And so when the the squad got announced, it was actually a squad of 30 that he announced, first of all, which went out to La Manga. And then he dropped six or seven of the players from that squad while they were out in La Manga. And when he picked the squad of 30 and I wasn't in the squad of 30, I was like, wow. That's a, and I was really shocked. And then I kind of thought about it uh, and I thought, OK, he's, he's not put me in the 30 because maybe... He's going to take Gaza and he doesn't think that me and Gaza can be in the same team or squad or whatever. And then when they went to La Manga and then he dropped Gaza as one of the other yeah. players, I was like, wow. I think that was a bigger blow to me than actually being left out of the 30. Seeing Gaza be left out of the squad as well to see what we were left with in terms of creative ability in that midfield yeah, yeah but you'd have thought that Glenn would have been a huge supporter of creative midfield players having been yeah. such a fantastic creative midfield player himself and the irony was wasn't it that we went out on penalties against Argentina and David Batty who'd never taken a penalty in his life took the decisive <laughs> penalty and had it saved and you know, I couldn't help but think that history might have, it sounds daft, history <laughs> might have been different if you'd have been there and it had been taking that penalty instead of David Batty. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I would have had more chance of scoring the penalty than David Batty. I don't think there's any argument about that. You just don't know how the games would have gone. I do remember sitting there watching the game. I sat, I know exactly where I was. I was sat with Franny Benali in his house watching that game uh, and when the penalty shootout came around I it just had this feeling that why aren't I there <laughs> I want to be there that's where I'm good at that and yeah it was that was a, a not a nice moment to sit and watch us go out on penalties again I hope you're enjoying the show. We can't do it without you. If you're listening to us on your favourite podcast platform please press follow to make sure we're in your feed every week. We will promise you get on the set plays soon. But as a player, you made the headlines. And I just want to touch on this without going into all the details necessarily. <laughs> but you are still making the headlines now for some of your <laughs> contributions or on social media about all sorts of things. And it's cost you quite 
significantly in lots of different ways. Do you regret the day you ever first went on social media? <laughs> uh, do I, really? I think the world would be a better place if we didn't have social media. Uh, I, I definitely think that uh, it's a pretty horrific place sometimes. But I don't regret doing what I've done, uh, even though I, it's cost me stuff. I would do exactly the same thing again because I think it's the right thing to do because I think we've, as a society, we've gone down a very, very dangerous path and I think people need to try to understand just how close we are to being run by very tyrannical people who don't have the best interests of humanity at heart. And that's kind of the basis for everything that I've done, really, and you can go into the the little bits and pieces about it but ultimately that's that's the biggest reason and i don't have a single regret about you know standing up for what i believe in and if that costs me money then so be it which it has the funniest thing about it is i get people calling me out on social media going you're a shill and i'm like right so you think i'm doing this for money when i've actually probably <laughs> sacrificed about 50 percent of what i was earning three or four years ago that doesn't make sense so uh but yeah as i said wouldn't change a thing i wouldn't i'd do the same thing again if i had to well i noticed that on x formerly twitter as we have to say these days seemingly <laughs> you know you've got nearly three quarters of a million followers so you've obviously got a, a lot of people who do agree have you ever thought this is a serious question you know you're still a relatively young man you've ever thought about going on you ever had a desire to go on and, and try and eke out a career in politics not really. Um, I'd never really uh, had much interest in it, and I don't really believe in the political system that we've got. I think if the system changed and it became a fairer system... Well, you could um, change it from the inside then, couldn't you? Or help change I, from the inside. I, I, I actually think the system itself at the moment needs to be torn down completely. Uh, I don't think it's a, a very fair, just system. I think it's a system that's been set up to protect the people that are involved in it. Um, so I don't think I'd really want to get involved. I'd rather fight it from from outside mm. and try and bring it down that way. Let's talk about football. I mean, obviously, you strike a wonderful ball, whether it be a, a dead ball or a ball in play. When you got to Southampton and you got your chance in the first team, how long did you have to wait before you took charge of the set plays? Oh, uh, that's a good question. I became the penalty taker, first of all, when I was 2020. How yeah. did that come about? Was that a uh, manager's so that choice about, or your no, choice? No, so or? what happened was um, we'd missed, uh, in the 88-89 season, uh, we'd missed a few penalties, I think, at the back end of the season. And during pre-season the next season, Chris Nickel put on a penalty competition in training. And basically just said to lads, anyone who fancies being the penalty taker, we're going to have a competition. So I was like, yeah, I'm up for that. <laughs> More goals. And so I scored every penalty in this penalty competition. Didn't even look like missing. And Chris Nicker went, right, there you go. You're the penalty taker this season. And we got eight that first season, scored all eight. Then we got seven the following season, scored all seven. I think we got five the next season, scored all five. So it was like three, three seasons where I just didn't miss a penalty. And then the first season of the Premier League, I think it was the second or third penalty of that season. And uh, Mark Crosley decided that he was going to make himself a hero and uh, uh, and save my my only penalty that I didn't score. 
so yeah, that was that was how the penalties came out. And I also started taking the free kicks quite early as well. That was pretty much the same season, the 89-90 season. I ended up winning Young Player of the Year that season, scored 24 goals. But we also had you know, other guys in the team who could take... So Russell Osman was in the team at the time. Russell also, I remember scoring a couple of brilliant free kicks. So I was kind of vying with him. He was, he was kind of the one that was going for the power and I was the one that was kind of chipping it over the walls and uh, trying to do the, the clever stuff. So was, was there any resistance to you taking set play? I mean, you would have been one of the more younger members of the yeah, team, wouldn't I was, you? I was you 21 senior then, players. Yeah. yeah. Um, actually, no, the, the senior players were pretty good. I think uh, the likes of Russell and Jimmy Case was in the team at, the, at that point as well. Jimmy could take a decent free kick himself. But I think actually they were they were pretty good with me and, and encouraged me to, to take the free kicks, especially the, the ones that were kind of right on the edge of the box where I needed a little bit more craft to try and get it up and down or bend it around the wall. So, yeah, I, I would say those guys were, were pretty good about it. Yeah. You got a favourite free kick? Yeah. The Wimbledon free kick is, is the one that kind of stands out above all the others, really. The day before the game uh, against Wimbledon, our coach had come up to me in training on the Friday, Lou Chatley. Uh, and he said to me, um, he said, Tizzy, I saw this guy in the European game on Tuesday night. He said, take this free kick. He said, I reckon you could do it. And I went, all right. Said, what was that? He went, well, he gets the ball there. He gets it rolled back to him. He flicks it up for himself and then he volleys it. And I was like, oh, I love a volley. I'm, I'm up for that. <laughs> so uh, that Friday after training, we did. me and Jimmy Jilton stood there and we, we did about, I don't know, a dozen a dozen goes at this free kick. Now, don't get me wrong, they didn't all go in. <laughs> and there were a couple that ended up in the trees behind the goal at Staplewood. But I, I, I like the idea and I thought, you know, if I once you flick the ball up and you've got a free shot from 25 yards, I mean, that was kind of one of the things I was good at. So as long as you could get the flick up right, it's actually a good chance of scoring a goal. The hard bit about it, well, like I said before, I didn't mind... I didn't mind making myself look an idiot if I did, if something didn't come off. So if if you try and do that and it doesn't come off, you know you're going to get dog's abuse, even from your own fans. Going, oh, what's he doing? Why did he just try and curl it over the wall? So it is a, it's quite brave to try something like that. And actually, when, I, when the free kick actually got rolled back to me, the day before, when I'd been flicking it up, I'd been flicking it up quite high, which gives you a nice bit of time to adjust your feet and then and get your strike off. When Jim rolled it back to me and I flicked it up, it didn't go anywhere near as high as what it had been the day before in training. So I had to adjust my feet really quickly. You don't, you don't really notice it and you wouldn't notice it. But because the ball didn't go up as high as I wanted it to, I had to adjust my feet quickly. But that actually probably helped me a little bit because it helped get the, the dip on the ball because I had to kind of whip my foot through it quite quickly. And so as it, as it goes over the ball and it dips, I was like, wow. And you see, when the, when the goal goes in, what you see me do is I, is I run off and my celebration, I go straight to the dugout and Lou Chatley is stood outside <laughs> the dugout like that. Yeah. <laughs> He's claiming an assist, is Absolutely. he? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still to come on Football's Greatest. The technique that he had was very, very similar to David's, but I actually think he was probably a little bit better than David's. Really? Better yeah. than Beckham? Yeah, I, I, think he, I think he has the consistency levels. In penalty terms... 47 out of 48, I think that's right, yeah. isn't it? Was there a technique? You know, did you know before a, a game where we would put the ball? You know, if you got a penalty, had you studied the opposition goalkeepers? Did you do that then? No, never did that back in those days. I, I couldn't have told you which way a 
goalkeeper dives for penalties, I wouldn't have known what his strongest side was. Didn't care. I didn't need to care because I knew it's a free shot from 12 yards. I could side foot the ball pretty powerfully. And I knew from that 12-yard spot, if I put this ball anywhere near the corner, within a yard probably of the post, at the pace that it's going in, there's not really any goalkeeper that's going to stop him. Now, quite a few goalkeepers got their hand to some of my penalties, but because of the pace that was on them, they couldn't, they couldn't keep it out. And so I didn't have a fixed thing in my mind. I had a favourite corner, which was to the keeper's left. So that, that would almost be my first go-to thing. But I would keep my eye on the goalie as long as I could. because in my So when I'm going to strike the ball, I'm not looking at the ball. I'm looking over the ball so that I can see the goalkeeper in my peripheral vision. And I can see, I can't see his features and everything, but I can see the outline of his body and I can see him move. Uh, and if he moves too early, then if he goes towards my corner that I'm, I want to hit it in, it was easy for me because of the angle of my foot going into that corner. If I needed to change my mind, all I had to do was whip my foot around the ball and you can do that right at the last minute. And it doesn't have, you know, it's not a difficult skill. The difficult bit is having the having the balls, if you like, to keep an open mind right up until the last second. And that's the hardest bit about taking the penalties. The technique wasn't difficult. It's the calmness in your in your head to be able to react to a situation within a split second. That's the hard bit. So can you teach that? Because you know, we've talked about it before. You, in this day and age in football, you've got everything, haven't you? You've got throw-in coaches. Yeah. Could you have a penalty-taking coach? Because I know, I know you've offered your services in the past, well, to England for a start. Yeah, yeah. No, I did, I did offer. Um, they weren't interested, but I, I offered. So why, weren't they inter- I was, why weren't they interested? I don't know. When you think of all the marginal gains that you're talking about, yeah. how somebody wouldn't be interested in being able to take penalties better, especially approaching major tournaments, just it seems a little bit crazy to me. But I wouldn't, I actually wouldn't teach everybody to take penalties the way that I took them. So I think what you'd have to do is you'd have to evaluate each individual and evaluate what their skill sets are. And are they capable of doing what I used to do? And if they're not, you adapt. Uh, and each person would have a different technique to take a penalty. Do you think that the basic difference comes down to the fact that you enjoyed taking penalties, yeah. whereas a lot of people fear taking penalties? It's a massive part of it. I'm sure you've watched penalty shootouts. I sit with people who, are, who haven't been footballers and watch penalty shootouts with them. And, and I'll just say to them, Watch the guy's face when he's walking up because the camera goes on to them as he's, and it's a long walk from that halfway line. I said, well, just watch the guy's face and tell me which ones you think want to be in that position and then have a look at the ones that miss yeah. and see if there's any correlation because I think you'll find there's quite a big correlation between the ones that are caught in the headlights and the ones that are walking up there with their chest out going, yeah, this is my moment. And that's the big difference. See, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Gareth Southgate was one of the England managers that you offered your services to, wasn't yeah. he? You know, now, of all people, Gareth should have known, you know, the benefits <laughs> of having a penalty coach. Yeah, it is really odd. As I said, the marginal gains thing that they always look for that little percentage. I mean, that's actually not just marginal. If you're in a major well, tournament, the chances of going to a penalty shootout are pretty high. And so you would think that you would want to, to actually... You know, maybe do something about that, but 
not interested. Well, maybe he'd seen you take the penalty against Mark Crossley. <laughs> so, <laughs> look, I mean, we, we've got to dwell on, you know, it's, it's ironic, isn't it? You score 47 out of 48, and the one yeah. we're going to dwell on is the, the one that you missed. So what happened? So that particular penalty, when I went to hit it into my favourite corner, Mark just went to move a little bit. So in my peripheral vision, I see him go that way. So as soon as I saw that, I changed my mind and, and go to the other corner. But Mark had only, he'd only gone a little bit and he stopped and then flung himself back the other way. And he timed, he timed the deception perfectly. And that's why the worst bit about it actually <laughs> is that he saved it. And, uh, and I think because I was in so much shock that I'd missed a penalty, he parried it straight back out to me from about seven yards out. <laughs> with my left foot I managed to hit it straight over the crossbar and I, that, I was actually more embarrassed about missing the rebound than I was about missing the penalty <laughs> it was a way worse miss I was looking back at some of the stats for goals in the Premier League scored from direct free kicks and a few years ago I think it was like 2014-2015 there were 34 direct free kicks scored that season last season there were 14 mm. do you think it's being coached out of them? Ah, uh, it's an interesting one, actually. I'm, I would think perhaps the uh, the data analysts are maybe looking at things and thinking that, you know, maybe shooting from free kicks isn't the optimum uh, way to get the best out of them. That might have something to do with it. But yeah, I think the standard of goalkeeping may have something to do with it. I don't know. The You know, the, the fact that the keepers are a little bit better, there's more research going into these free kicks so the goalkeepers know where the players uh, are perhaps putting them so they're they're just preempting things a little bit uh who knows but i i, I certainly still think that there's something pretty special about a, a direct free kick that flies in the top corner and gets everyone off the off the seats in the ground i mean that's that's a pretty special feeling when those when those free kicks do go in and and the ground erupts i think they're still one of the the most special ways to score goals yeah well, James Ward-Prowse has had that feeling plenty of times. And of course, like you, an ex-saint. And I, I know you've met him and talked about his sort of technique. Were there any similarities with between him and you? Not really. Um, there were similarities between uh, him and David Beckham. Uh, the way that, you know, the, the wit that he gets on his ball. I mean, he's much better free kick taker than, than I was. You know, his output has surpassed mine comfortably. I think the... The technique that he had was very, very similar to David's, but I actually think he is probably a little bit better than David's. Really, better yeah. than Beckham. Yeah, I, th I think he, I think he has the consistency levels. See, bend it like Ward Prowse doesn't have quite that not same quite ring. Not the same ring. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not playing for a global club, so uh, he'll, he'll never get the uh, recognition he probably deserves. Yeah, they say practice makes perfect. Is he an obsessive practicer? Does he practice non-stop? He has done in the past. I'm not sure if he if he does it quite so much now, but certainly when he was a kid, I spoke to him about it, and yeah, he would practice, 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 and that's that's the thing. If you've got a certain amount of ability, then if you're willing to work at it, then you can turn that that nice ability into something that's world class. If you've, but you you need to have a little bit there to start with, yeah. and then you can go from from having no ability whatsoever naturally to then being completely world-class. I'm thinking of other current players. 
where you're going to laugh, I'm not going to compare him with you, but <laughs> he's got some of the attributes in the sense that he can play a raking ball, got great range of passing and a wicked set player as well. Uh, is Trent Alexander-Arnold. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I see that. Uh, I see the, the range of passing. Yeah. Definitely. And, and his set pieces are obviously very good as well. And he's right up there with best crosses of the ball you'd probably seen in the Premier League history. So I can see the comparisons. Obviously, the, the position that he plays uh, is a little bit different. But as we've seen, he can he can move into midfield pretty comfortably uh, and play that role. So that boy's got a lot of ability. Yeah. I mean, I guess in a similar vein, Kieran Trippier is a fantastic set play specialist. Yeah. It's not just his set play specialist. What I love about Kieran Trippier is when you pass Kieran Trippier a ball, his first touch puts the ball exactly where he needs it to be to give himself the most amount of time to be able to pick a pass. And that, for me, when I watch Kieran Trippier play, that's the thing I'm most impressed about, is his his ability to know where he needs to put that ball. Because as a professional footballer, when you've got, you're playing at that level and the, the pace of the game is so quick and you don't have a lot of time on the ball, if you can buy yourself a split second by doing something really, really well, it makes such a massive difference. And Kieran Trippier does that as good as anybody I've seen in the Premier League. Anybody else in the Premier League who, when they stand over a free kick, you think, wow, this could be special? Kevin De Bruyne. Uh, I, I love watching Kevin play. Uh, again, not just the set pieces, his ability to see a pass that no one else on the pitch sees. That, for me, is stands him out and you know and City for a team as good as Manchester City when Kevin De Bruyne isn't in the team they miss him and that's that's how good he is yeah, yeah. Bruno Fernandes you get excited when he's over a free kick um not as much not I don't think he's quite a, at the same level don't get me wrong I'm not saying he's rubbish <laughs> um, uh, but I think in in terms of you know the the Prousies and the and the De Bruyne's, I don't think Fernandez. I think Fernandez probably maybe just a step down from that. Okay, I want to mention one more Portuguese. When we're talking about set players, you can't do it without mentioning Cristiano, Cristiano Ronaldo. Yeah. Well, I, and of course, he developed this technique, which was very much his own. Mm. I'm not sure if you looked at percentages of free kicks taken and those that ended up in the back of the net. <laughs> he would go down necessarily as a great set play taker, was he? Mm, not really. I mean, there were a, there were a few, obviously, incredibly spectacular ones when it did come off. But as you say, the, the ratio probably isn't up there. I mean, I remember one against, I think it was against Portsmouth. It was kind of one of the best free kicks I, I think I've seen where he hit it and David James was in goal for Portsmouth and it's flown in the top corner and David James literally just went and stood there and watched it fly in the top corner and it was moving all over the place. And that was kind of, you thought, oh, that, that was pretty special. And then he takes another 50 free kicks in a row and they've all gone yeah. in row Z. <laughs> but everyone still remembers the great one. I'll tell you what else, actually. One of the best free kicks I've seen in Premier League history was from Payet. Dimitri, oh, Dimitri Payet, Payet. Yeah, yeah. He scored a free kick. I can't remember who it was against, but it was on the left as I'm looking at the goal it was on the left hand side of the penalty area and he hit it right footed and he hit it with so much height that it must have gone two or three yards above the crossbar and in the middle of its flight it dipped into the far top corner it was one of the best free kicks 
uh, I think I've ever seen. I mean, he had an amazing brilliant. reputation for free kicks, but I think he only ever scored three for West Ham, which was yeah. you know a disappointing in, in terms of a, yeah. a return. But that was one that was just one that, that sticks in my mind. Obviously, Roberto Carlos is one, obviously a free kick that's legendary as well. But yeah, as I said, but when somebody scores a great free kick, it's something that sticks in your mind for years and years to come. I mean, that goal that I scored against Wimbledon. People still come up and talk to me about it now. That's 29 years ago. I do hope you're enjoying the show. I just want to tell you that you can follow us at, at Football's Greatest Pod on Instagram, TikTok and Facebook. And search for Football's Greatest Pod to find us on X. I bet there are loads of players out there who in training or after training or whatever can bend it like Beckham or bend it like Letizia yeah. into the top corner all the time. But when it comes to the big moment, if they get their chance, may not be able to do it. Yeah, that, that's what separates the wheat from the chaff at the end of the day. And again, I go back to that point about the best players aren't afraid to look silly trying something. Mm. Because to, to be able to do something out of the ordinary... You've also got to understand that if it doesn't come off, you're going to get stick. Mm. You know, you're going to have a whole stadium laughing at you. You can have your teammates going, "What the hell was that, you idiot?" But you know that you've got to try it because if it comes off, wow! So to be a great set play exponent, you need to a love it. Yep. B want to score a goal, and C be a man for the big occasion. Yeah. Don't be afraid to miss. Okay. Don't be afraid to make yourself look silly. <laughs> <laughs> right, look, I tell you what, Tis, what we're going to do now is we're going to do some quick fire greatest. Okay, I'm going to give you 10 or ask you for 10 great people or moments from your career. Okay. okay. So I know the answer to the first one already. <laughs> your greatest manager or coach? Alan Ball. Okay. This is meant to be quick fire, but it's not going to be that quick fire <laughs> because I've got to ask you why. Uh, so. Bawley was really the only one of my nine managers at Southampton who gave me a completely free role. He kind of built the team around me. So he set the team up in a, in a shape and then he literally put me in the middle of the pitch and went, this is your best player. Whenever you lot get the ball, the first thing I want you to do is can I pass to him? And it honestly was like being back in the school playground with my school football team where I would just get the ball and dribble past everyone and go to school. <laughs> uh, and so to have a manager who had as much belief in my ability as I had in my own was just phenomenal. And that's why a lot of my best moments were in that 18 months when Borley was, was my manager. Those I played 64 games under Borley and I scored 45 goals. Whoa. Secondly, your greatest teammate. Uh, my greatest teammate. So the, the teammate I enjoyed playing alongside the most, who was completely on my wavelength on a football pitch, was a guy called Ronnie Eckland. Now, a lot of people won't remember that. If you're not a Saints fan, you wouldn't probably remember Ronnie. He was only at Saints for a season. But honestly, it was just the most fun to be on a pitch with somebody who he knew what was going through my mind and I knew what was going through his mind. And we read each other's play brilliantly. And it was it was so much fun and I wish it could have lasted longer. Your greatest opponent, Tess? I would say it was between two people, Thierry Henry or Roberto Baggio. Mm. Played Juventus in a pre-season friendly in the early 90s and Baggio was just phenomenal. Just so silky smooth, 
magnificent first touch, you know, like I was talking about Kieran Trippier before. Just the ball comes to him and he just knows where it needs to be, buys himself time. It's just lovely to watch. And Henri was just a joke. Um, so it would be between those two. I think we know the answer to this one already. Your greatest goal? Yeah, that was my goal against Blackburn. I, I feel yeah. it was my best goal I scored, yeah. Greatest match? So my greatest match for Southampton was in October 1989. Uh, it was at the Dell. We beat Liverpool 4-1. And at that point in the season, Liverpool were unbeaten. They were the best team in the country at the time. I mean, that was the John Barnes, Ian Rush, Peter Beersley. That team was just phenomenal. They came to that and we absolutely battered them. And it could have been seven or eight and you wouldn't have battered an eyelid. We hit the post two or three times that that day. It was just one of those days where the entire team, every man on the team played to his maximum. Uh, be careful with this one. Uh, your greatest <laughs> mate in football. My greatest mate in football is Franny Benali. Yeah, Franny is, is a, I mean, we've, been good mates since we were 15 years old I mean that's a friendship that's lasted a hell of a long time and the only time we've ever really fallen out has been in training when I've not made him and he's got the ump and tried to kick the shit out of me <laughs> <laughs> um, your greatest rollicking test ooh ah oh, that would have been probably in my youth team days from Dave Merrington who was a very hard taskmaster as a as a youth team coach and uh I remember, I remember playing in a game at Tottenham away in the in the youth team at their old training ground, Cheshire, I think it was, and um, it was like it was a bit of a frosty pitch, and it was a, you know, had to be a little bit careful with your footing, and they you know they didn't call games off in those days easily, and so we played the first half, and I barely had a kick the whole first half, and I was like just trying to trying to keep my balance, not get injured really. And uh, coming at half time and he has given me the dressing down of all dressing downs and he's gone. And at the end of it, he's gone, you've got 10 minutes in this second half or I'm pulling you off, right? And uh, so I went out in the second half and after about four or five minutes, I scored. <laughs> we were, we were one up and I, ended, I think I scored another one later on in the game. And then after the game, Dave was driving the minibus. So we're driving back to Southampton, but he also had to do the report for the local paper so he so he'd be driving the bus but he'd be he'd be doing his report for the local paper to send to give to the daily echo when we got back and he's driving the bus on the way back and uh could see him thinking and he, he turns to me and he went matt he said uh when did you score that first goal and i went it was about four minutes after you told me i had 10 minutes left dave <laughs> <laughs> so yeah it worked that rollicking worked <laughs> Uh, your greatest regret? Have you got any? No, I don't really do regrets. Uh, if I could change one thing in that game against Italy that I mentioned earlier, the uh, the World Cup qualifier at Wembley, we lost 1-0, Zola scored for them. Uh, in the first half, I had a chance with a header. Graham Lasso crossed it from the left. And I remember coming in and thinking, I'm going to get to this first. The goalie was coming out to try and get it. and he's, So he's out of his goal. I get there first. I head it past him. And the goal is gaping and it's gone about that far wide of the post and I, and I just think had that header gone in I might have gone to the 98 World Cup uh, fine margins as they say yeah. um, greatest roommate greatest roommate people didn't like rooming with me <laughs> <laughs> why not on a Friday night before a game I didn't used to sleep very early so I, I would just still be awake at like two in the morning watching telly <laughs> they didn't like that and I was ordering room service at midnight and things 
be a healthy uh, snack. I mean, it was like sandwiches and stuff. It wasn't really bad, but I just get a bit peckish. Um, Barry Horn. Barry Horn was my was my favourite roommate. I had about three years when I roomed with Barry, and he was a he taught me a lot actually. Very intelligent lad. Good conversations with Bass. So yeah, I, I still get on well with him now. And finally, and I think we know the answer to this as well, Tiss, your greatest moment. My greatest moment, I think, will always be for me, you know, the pinnacle of, of any footballer's career is when he represents his country. So I think when the first time I, I set foot on the pitch at Wembley, came who, on who as was a that sub against? against Denmark, Terry Venable's first game in charge, came on as a sub. That was just for for me, I mean, all my, my mum and dad and my family up in the crowd. That was just a a moment that just gives me goosebumps now and you know one of my favourite moments was actually after after the game just taking that that shirt that I'd just worn and giving it to my mum and dad in the in the bar afterwards that was that was pretty special yeah, it's a feeling that not many people will have brilliant look Tiss thanks very much for, for coming in um, pleasure mate if you're too young, by the way, to have watched him live, go and watch the Golds compilations because they are phenomenal and a heck of a lot better than his tweets. I'll tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> you're not allowed to call them that anymore. They're oh, posts. Now. Yeah, they're posts. Okay. Xs. Yeah. <laughs> Next time on Football's Greatest, Chelsea double winner Michael Ballack discusses the greatest German players to grace the Premier League. Do you see in years to come Jurgen Klopp may be being manager of the German national team? I mean, of course, we would love it one day because he has this quality, uh, he has this character to actually symbolize all Germans' German attitudes. And we need a leader like him. And whenever he's ready, I think people on the fans would love it. Remember to subscribe to the show on YouTube and follow us on your favorite podcast platform. Thanks for joining us. Football's Greatest is a folding pocket production with BBC Studios.